this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Nigel Dunkley, MBE, is a former Royal Scots Dragoon Guard who served in Berlin with a squadron of chieftain tanks tasked with defending the British sector, including the Brandenburg Gate, should the Cold War have turned hot. Nigel also performed intelligence-gathering duties in the former East Germany with Bricksmiths, which was an intelligence organisation that worked throughout the Cold War years, gathering intelligence in the former Soviet occupation zone of East Germany, on the threat posed to the West and NATO by the 20 Soviet and 6 East German Army Divisions, and their air forces deployed there. In the 1980s, Nigel also interpreted for Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, who was being held in Spandau Prison in Berlin, and provides some fascinating insight into the character of Hess. Later in his military career, Nigel was awarded the MBE and the Bronze Star Medal for his services with the US 1st Cavalry Division during Operation Desert Storm. Nigel was also Chief of Staff at the Royal Armoured Corps Centre at Bovington, ending his army career as Defence Attaché at the British Embassy in Berlin. I am delighted and honoured to welcome Nigel Dunkley. Okay, do you just want to give me a, a, a brief background on your uh, military career up to Berlin? Well, that won't take long because I went to Berlin three times uh, in uniform. Uh, once as a lieutenant, once as a captain, and once as a major. So uh, up to Berlin doesn't take you very far. But let me just give you a brief of what uh, of what I did. Yeah. Um, I'm a Scotsman. <laughs> very proud of that. I'm an army brat. My father um, was stationed with his regiment uh, in in Germany. That was in Osnabrück, and I've got dim memories of that as a small child and uh, learnt my first words of German uh, as a young guy. And then uh, back home to Scotland and went to Scottish school, Scottish university, studied Scots law, everything was very Scottish, and thought, okay, I'd like to get out just for three years. In those days, it was possible to join the army on a short service commission, in other words, three years. Right. Um, And I thought, okay, that's probably what I'd like to do. And so without really thinking about it too much, um. I applied to go to the Royal Military Academy Soundhurst. I visited it. Then I did my selection for that. That was fine. And that actually took me by surprise. I wasn't really thinking that I'd, I'd get in because I think of my 57 applicants in my batch, there were only seven that were accepted. So it was a high failure rate. And I thought I'd be one of the failures because I wasn't really taking life seriously, really. <laughs> but um, I was successful, so I went to the uh, Royal Merch Academy, commissioned on the 10th of December, 1976. Yes, I am that old. And then um, joined my regiment. That was in Catrick. Catrick was boring. The regiment had one squadron. It's an armoured regiment, so we had heavy tanks. We had one squadron in Berlin, and that's really where I thought that sounded a lot more interesting. So I managed to uh, work my way into the favor of the uh, commanding officer, actually through his wife, by dancing with her. And, uh, so I found myself um, posted to Berlin, and that was in uh, 
Oh, now that would be just back end of 1977, early 1978, somewhere around about there. Right. And what were your first impressions of Berlin when you arrived? Exciting. Um, I was amazed how many bullet holes there still were, particularly in East Berlin. I could speak some German, modicum of German, so that was fascinating. So talking to them and finding out what life was like, I think, was completely different to what I was used to coming from Scotland and going to a Scottish university. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it very exciting, and I also found it very exciting bombing around Berlin uh, with uh, fully bombed-up ammunition. Uh, everything was live, and we only had 15 minutes to get out of the uh, out of the barracks, day or night. Right. And what were the what were the uh, vehicles? Were these with the heavy tanks or? Yeah, not? we had a squadron of uh, chieftain tanks, the dear old dinosaur on tracks, as we used to call it, a powerful gun, very heavily armoured, and all everything was good except for the um, <laughs> except for the uh, for the engine, which was too weak. It was only um, it wasn't even seven hundred horsepower. I mean, when you think that the Germans. Uh, before the end of the Second World War, were stipulating nothing less than a thousand horsepower in their tanks. Yeah, ours were underpowered, but nevertheless, uh, we had fourteen of these big, heavy monsters, and we were supposed to be um, prepared to defend West Berlin in our sector if there was going to be any uh, confrontation with the Soviets. And so we trained for that. We took it very seriously, um, and as I say, when uh, when we when the when the alarm went, you had to get out of your bed and get into your tank and out the gate within 15 minutes. At least the first four tanks had to be out within 15 minutes, which is uh, particularly in the winter time when, you know, that's going some, even when yeah. it's particularly, uh, yeah. Yeah. Even and when it's good weather, it's still going some. Yeah. So that yeah. was, um, that was me growing up pretty fast, actually. And, um, Going over, we had the uh, we had the privilege basically of going over to East Berlin through Checkpoint Charlie. I found that very exciting, particularly Go- going into the the East. What what did you with with these sort of acclimatization visits, or you you just were interested in going over there? There are about three or four different threads to that uh, question. The first one is that we, for the first month or two went on to a roster of duty, which was every Saturday, which of course was bloody boring. And every Saturday we had to, um, we had to escort in service dress smart uniform, a bus load of people. And the bus sort of system was arranged for families and particularly for their visitors. And it was organized by um, some very gallant women in the WRVS, the women's, um, Royal Volunteer, something or other, WRVS. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, you were on the roster, whether you liked it or not, you had to be down at the NAFI at 9.30 in the morning, and there would be a classroom of about 30 people. There would be a briefing. We all had to make sure that they were all correctly um, dressed and they were correctly um, uh, uh, equipped with some East German Deutschmarks as well as some West German Deutschmarks and that they had their identity cards with them at all times. And with that, we were then uh, off on a bus and you were an understudy to a guy who was usually a captain. Quite often it was from the Royal Army Educational Corps and he had a script and the script was um, actually giving a short description of all of the important and interesting buildings that we were going past mm-hmm. uh, throughout West Berlin. And then round about um, two hours later, 
through Checkpoint Charlie, and that was very exciting, and that was my very first time that I'd been into a communist country. And then we had to uh, memorize and describe very quickly as we drove through uh, East Berlin. I found that very exciting. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, I, I was there in uh, 89 for um, a couple of weeks and I did find East Berlin absolutely fascinating. You're right. You know, it looked like World War II had just finished over there yeah. with all the, uh, the, uh, the bullet riddled buildings. Um, can I just take you back to the, uh, the the chieftain tanks and the defence of the British sector. Did you have pre-set locations that you were to go to in order to yeah. defend the British sector? Yeah. And uh, when you were crashed out, as we used to call it, crashed out of the barracks, that was in Smuts Barracks, which is on the Wilhelmstrasse in uh, Spandau. You would then have 15 minutes to get the tanks out and the radios tuned in and the weapons out the armoury. And at the same time, would then be given a briefing of, as to where to go and what to do. And that usually um, involved one of several options. One was to take um, a troop of tanks down to Gato, down to the airfield there, yeah, and uh, set up a defensive perimeter there in order to um, secure the airfield for families flying out. If there was going to be a time of heightened tension in Berlin, that was our first mission. Right. The second thing was to go and defend the bridges. There were two bridges on the main road. Do you remember having been here? You may remember where the uh, where the Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery uh, plot is. It's on the Heerstrasse, the yeah, main near, one. near the Olympic Stadium. There. That's the one. Yeah, yep. I was there yesterday, actually. Well, there were, well, there still are. There were two uh, bridges. One is called the Stössensee-Brücke. The other one's called the Freibrücke. And we would then have to go and position our tanks on the bridges um, cleverly so we would be uh, able to defend the bridges in order to give the engineers, 3-8 engineer um, squadron, Royal Engineers, mm-hmm. time to blow the bridges uh, before the Soviets could get their tanks across. And so that was one of the missions. Another one was to dash down um, as fast as we could down to the Brandenburg Gate. And that was my favorite. And we practiced that. <laughs> time to time, charging down to the Brandenburg Gate uh, was exciting. It really was. We made a lot of noise and a lot of dust, and we belted down there as fast as we could, got down to the Brandenburg Gate. There would be a huge commotion on the east side, and the Stasi um, observers would would be scuttling around. It was like stirring up a hornet's nest. They were trying to photograph everything. I saw one guy uh, with a stopwatch. He was timing us from our barracks down to the Brandenburg Gate. Right. They were trying to get the uh, the registration numbers off the front of the tanks and our faces. So we'd always turn our faces away. Yeah. That's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff we were doing. Wow. Wow. Well, that was fun. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And so d- at the Brandenburg Gate, I mean, that there's it's pretty open down there. Okay. You've got the tear garden. So you, you were just positioned out in the open next to the Soviet war, uh, memorial. And you're right. It was actually, uh, pretty open, but, uh, funnily enough, we anticipated or somebody had figured out that one of the main places that they could come through would be to go straight through the Brandenburg gate, uh, where the wall of course was a lot less threatening looking. Mm-hmm. I mean, 3.45 meters high, only 11 and a half feet high anyway, but it was reduced in height uh, and in solidity and offensive uh, depth 
down at the Brandenburg Gate. So that is um, conceivably one of the places where they might have actually come through. Yeah. Because it wouldn't have been the Russians coming through. It would have been the East German NVA, the National People's Army. They would have been coming through. Yeah. So we dashed straight down and literally just did a, like a, a, you know, a gunfight at the OK Corral face down look. You know, we tried to look mean. Yeah. Get the tanks down there without breaking down, which is some not a mean feat <laughs> in achievement. And uh, go like, horror, we're here. Arr, yeah. And we're ready. Yeah. Should there be a problem? Wow. Wow. And were the chieftains with that unique uh, dazzle camouflage then? No, it was before the dazzle, which was invented by a guy called Major Clendon Dorks of the 47th Dragoon Guards. I know him quite well. I knew him quite well. Mm hmm. That is not, I mean, he takes all the credit for that. And I think he got an OB, uh, an MBE, actually, but um, it wasn't anything new. It was his idea to apply it to a British vehicle. But actually, um, that kind of dazzle, um, what did we call it? I think we called it urban camouflage. That's the correct term for it. That was uh, um, tried by the, uh, by the Wehrmacht already in the Second World War. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Mm. But uh, we were the first ones, I think, to use it uh, comprehensively the way that we did with an entire, uh, you know, an entire urban color scheme across the entire squadron. I think yeah. it was done more or less unofficially during the Second World War. There are photographs, black and white ones, obviously, of uh, Wehrmacht vehicles, Hannah Mags and Henschels and uh, Tigers and stuff like that with this kind of funny idea of... Um, of camouflage. And then, interestingly enough, um, the Soviets, a couple of years later, did exactly the same with some of their vehicles. Right. They copied it, yeah. Oh. It's uh, flattery if they're imitating you, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose it was, yeah. I mean, I was quite surprised the first time I saw one. It was on yeah. a training area. It was on a doing a battle run uh, at a place called Miningen. And uh, suddenly all of these... Berlin camouflage BMPs and BMP2s went charging past. I thought, bloody hell, that, um, I know where I've seen that before. You know, that was such a kind of surprise. And I, I understand you, you had some involvement with Spandau Prison as well. Well, um, I was very excited about being in Berlin the first time. I was fascinated by the place and by the setup and all that kind of stuff. And a friend of mine, just by coincidence, uh, called Mark Auchinleck, who's a nephew of the great field marshal, Sir Claude Auchinleck, by the right. way. Yeah. He just happened to be in Berlin. He's from my regiment. I saw his grey berry in the distance in East Germany, in East Berlin, rather. <laughs> and I didn't know that he was here. It was all rather sort of semi-covert and quite exciting to me. I then got a briefing by him a little bit, but there were a lot of things that he couldn't tell me, obviously, within the constraints of the Official Secrets Act. Um, but he let me know that what he was doing was actually quite an exciting uh, job. And actually once when I was uh, invited around to dinner by him, I saw a mud bespattered, half wrecked looking Range Rover, which itself was exciting seeing a Range Rover in uh, matte, olive drab, British stuff. And it had yellow plates front and rear with Cyrillic script uh, written on it, which said um, Commanders-in-Chief Mission to the Soviet Forces in Germany. But, of course, I couldn't read that at that time. Yeah. So that's where I, through, through that contact, through Mark Wojnlech, um learned that uh, there was such a thing as Brixmas. I didn't know it at the time. 
What I did know was that I thoroughly enjoyed the second most common reason that I was in East Berlin, and that was to do flag tours. Thoroughly enjoyed doing that. That was a huge, big, glossy-painted Opal Admiral. We were dressed in a smart number two dress uniform, that kind of stuff. And we would go and check out the barracks and photograph the barracks and count tanks and stuff like that in East Berlin. We particularly, being an armored uh, organization, an armored uh, squadron, were interested in the um, Karlshorst, Soviet Army Independent uh, Tank Brigade that was at Karlshorst in East Berlin. Mm-hmm. So um, that all put all of that together. And I, my, I, I was hooked, basically. I wanted to come back to Berlin. I was prepared to go off and spend nearly two years of my life in a classroom doing various things mm-hmm. um, and saying goodbye to soldiering. You know, I'd been in Northern Ireland. I'd already done half a year in Northern Ireland with the light infantry, just on attachment. I get bored very easily, or I was in those days, and therefore the prospect of uh, learning Russian for ha- a year and a half and then doing six months of other training, special intelligence training, um, wasn't exactly appealing, but it was worth it in order to come back to Berlin and do this very exciting job that I knew so little about in Communist East Germany. Yeah. Now, that is the background. As a result of us sometimes being back in Berlin and not in Communist East Germany, working, uh, doing our intelligence gathering, because we could speak by this time fluent German, fluent Russian, fluent uh, French, meant that we were actually quite useful if there was something happening down at Spandau Prison. And we had the uh, right um, accreditation with the Soviets. So from time to time, yeah, I found myself um, doing duty um, down at Spandau. For example, uh, a medical inspection of Rudolf Hess, that is something I shall never forget. And also when uh, Major General Bernard Gordon Lennox uh, took over as the GOC in Berlin, I was down there too, where he was then um, shown Rudolf Hess. We course couldn't call him Rudolf Hess. We had to call him Gefangener Nummer 7, Prisoner Nummer 7. And that was fascinating, watching Hess um, opening his closet to show this new incoming GOC Berlin, um, his flying Luftwaffe uniform that he had actually worn that night um, in 1941 when he parachuted out over Eaglesham in Scotland. There it was in a cupboard with the boots as well. Wow, when he, he was trying to uh, meet the Duke of Hamilton. That's right. And uh, I've been to the field where his aircraft came down, and uh, I told him that. We were not supposed to talk small talk to Rudolf Hess, uh, but I did anyway. And I told him I'd seen the, remem- the remains of his Messerschmitt 110 um, in the Imperial War Museum, and he's very excited about that. And he, he, he was pretty sharp. He, he had these piercing eyes and these bushy eye, craggy, bushy eyebrows, but he didn't miss a trick. And, um, you really had to watch your translations, especially if there was a medical, um, inspection. Then you'd have to very quickly translate sometimes into several different languages, not just uh, his. Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of exciting. I enjoyed doing that. Wow. And and your, your impression of Hess? I mean, you, you described him as as quite sharp. I mean, what what was your overall in, impression of him? Um, pretty piercing eyes, but quite harmless. Uh, I know that he had um, committed or tried to commit suicide already, um, but he was very frail. Uh, he 
his eyes lit up when he was showing Major General Bernard Gordon Lennox, the new GOC Berlin, around that. So that would be about 1984, I think it was, around um, the accommodation that he had in the prison. Of course, it was a huge prison room yeah. for several hundred prisoners, but he was the only one that was left in there. That was a very spooky feeling. But um, his, his eyes lit up when he showed the general a... Um, a, a hospital room, one of the prison hospital rooms, and that was being used by uh, Hess to chart the heavens. He had lots of um, huge, big, white um, pictures of the heavens, and he could talk um, quite excitedly and quite competently about the uh, the light years distance between various different star clusters and galaxies and combinations of galaxies and things. And the reason it was in that room, that um, white um, porcelain-tiled room, shiny-tiled room, mm -hmm. was because the um, the sellotape would stick to the wall to keep <laughs> these charts on. And they all joined together. And he got very excited about that. And he was very happy to show the general. So that's one example of how sharp his brain was. Yeah, He was into um, astrology and astronomy. He was very much into that. But he also uh, was frail. Physically, he was frail. In other words, I do remember um, that not just me, but another colleague of mine called Bob Longhorn, Captain Log uh, Bob Longhorn, we both agreed that he was so bloody frail that we'd have to um, tie or help him tie his shoelaces for him. But we would have let him go years earlier. I mean, he'd missed, he'd missed all of the Second World War, basically, uh, well, the, the exciting stuff. Um, I hadn't really got a clue what happened after he arrived in uh, Scotland. And so really didn't really know much about what had been going on. It was amazing how little he actually did know. Yeah. Yeah. And how did the, did you get any feeling as to how the Soviets treated him? Because obviously there was the rotation with the, with the different guards from the other occupying powers, wasn't there? Yeah. We'd all sit down. There was usually after there was a rotation between the guards, there would be a lunch. And um, once again, one had to go along and use your Russian um, and use your German as well. So you had to be sharp and on your toes. I remember going to several of those lunches where I didn't eat more than one mouthful. I didn't drink a single bloody drop of anything, but an awful lot of translating and interpreting. And they were very, um, they were very, I wouldn't say brutal, but they were quite severe in the way that they treated him very firmly. They didn't shout or anything else like that. But, for example, there was a committee that would have to regularly meet to discuss his menu for the upcoming week. Or, in fact, for the upcoming month, I suppose it would be. And they went into great detail about whether he was having too much of this or not enough of that. And then also there'd be another interesting uh, meeting. We'd all sit down together and talk about what newspaper articles were to be allowed to be kept in his newspaper. So he ended up basically with a newspaper full of holes Anything that was slightly political had to be cut out. So everybody then had to agree. And so this rather futile exercise, basically, to keep him completely in the dark about what was happening in modern politics in Germany and beyond, yeah. was uh, kept from him. So it was, uh, it was bizarre in a way. But we, we couldn't have really bothered too much by this time. He was just a harmless old man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, the Russians were still very upset with him. They knew why he'd gone to Scotland in order to try and achieve a peace, as you well know, in the uh, 
in the West so that the Nazis could have a free hand when they attacked the Soviet Union in June 1941. And they knew that. And so they hated him for it. And they wanted him to suffer for it. Wow. That, that's really interesting. That That's some great insight. And also to hear from somebody who, you know, met Hess as well. Um, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a footnote to that. Um, when the wall fell, and I was back in uh, Berlin yet again, I was always engineering that I came back to Berlin. Um, I did a little bit of research. I'm a historian nowadays anyway, and thoroughly enjoy being one. And one of the things that interested me was a little bit more detail about the Potsdam Conference. So with a map of the accommodation of the three um, um, delegations and where they were housed for the Potsdam Conference by the Soviets, I went charging around an area called the Griebnitzsee, which is between Berlin and Potsdam, which had been out of bounds to us during the Cold War, but now it was free and open. So I literally went um, hopping over hedges and knocking on doors and making myself a, a, a polite nuisance, I think, <laughs> and found myself in the garden of an empty villa, which was the villa that was used by Churchill and Churchill's daughter for the Potsdam Conference. That whole street, it was called Ringstrasse, before it was called Virchowstrasse. So anyway, I found myself in there. And as a result, um, a neighbor got slightly irate about me charging around and hopping over the hedge and things, uh, uh, but ended up then being a font of information uh, and quite uh, interesting, and quite a nice woman, actually. Um, so armed with all of that information I could glean from her and from the map, I um, ended up uh, talking to uh, Lady Mary Soames. In fact, I should correctly say the Lady Mary Soames mm -hmm. in London. And uh, the result was an invitation um, basically was me uh, agreeing to host a tour and she coming over to Berlin. She said, well, do get on with it before I die. You know, I might die one day. <laughs> I'd love to come back. I'd love to see Berlin. I haven't seen it since 1945 with my father. And uh, please do invite me. And do you mind if I bring some of my friends? And I thought, not at all. I can feel a tour coming out of this, which is going to be very interesting. <laughs> and um, she turned up with 150 people. <laughs> a few friends. <laughs> uh, and that was, uh, it was actually an, uh, an, uh, an organization called the In uh, International Churchill Society. There are two, actually. And she, as the patron of, or presidentess of that organization, they thought this is a wow opportunity to um, witness her back in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And so um, I put together a program, which was, um, I think it was six days long, if you include the flying as well. She was fantastic. She had a whale of a time. And I got the opportunity to ask her about what she thought that her father might have said or thought about the opportunity to meet Rudolf Hess. And she said, well, you know, Nigel, she said, my father being a most curious, and these are exactly her words, being a most curious person probably would have relished the uh, the opportunity to meet her Hess, as she called him, Rudolf Hess. Yeah. And I said, well, do you think he might have done it? Because that was the big question, really. You know. Yeah. Did he or did he not actually get to meet him? She said, well, let's just leave it at this. Being my father, being a most interested, most curious person, would be very interested if he had the opportunity to meet Rudolf Hess. But it was probably politically not acceptable at the time. Mm 
Yeah. And therefore was probably disallowed. So the, uh, the question mark will be, I hope, pretty soon answered, but it still is an open question. Because I had an opportunity. Go on. No. Sorry. I had an opportunity to also ask question, questions which I know I shouldn't have done, uh, which was prohibited to do so of Hess. But to get a long story short, um, uh, without compromising myself too much, what I was interested in was what the hell did the Nazis actually think they were doing declaring war on America? And Hess was of the opinion that, no, there was absolutely no ground war plan of the Nazis at all uh, to attack America, but simply that in collaboration with the Japanese, the uh, growing successes of the German U-boat arm would take care of any shipping movements in the Atlantic. So in other words, on the Atlantic seaboard of America, torpedo anything and everything coming in and out on that side. And the Japanese would do the same on the Pacific side. And that way they'd bottle up and stop uh, any um, significant uh, participation in the war by America. And I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very confident belief in their U-boat arm yeah. <laughs> as well. Um, I, I understood that a lot of the, there are significant papers about Hess that still haven't been released. Is that correct? That's right. They were to be released about five years ago. And then just before they were to be released, um, there was a slam down. There was a block put um, on them being released into the National Archives at Kew. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Which does make you wonder, doesn't it? But uh... oh, Well, I think I know why, but uh, I'm not completely sure why. But we'll find out, I think, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is tantalizing, isn't it, when you think, why on earth would we be so concerned about what happened back during the war? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, why would these papers still be so sensitive that they have to be prevented from being released to the public. Fascinating. I, mean, I have I, an idea. Yeah, I mean, my speculation would be is there's certain names in there of people Hess or the Nazis had down as people who would want to have dialogue with them who perhaps don't want those names released now or something like that. I don't know. Mm. Uh, there is some speculation about whether Hess went up to Scotland and that the Duke of Kent, the present Duke of Kent's father, who was killed in that flying boat accident on his way to Iceland. Yeah. And I've been to the Cairn on a hillside um, north of Inverness where the flying boat piled into the, the hillside mm. and killed everybody, the Duke of Kent, of course, being the main VIP. 
um, because I happen to be very close to a shooting lodge, uh, which is was possibly being used um, to house Hess for a secret meeting or a, a clandestine meeting. There is some um, evidence to suggest that that's not such an outlandish um, proposition. It's possible. I'm not sure whether it's probable, but it's possible. So there's that as well. And if you read the writing on the can where this Sunderland flying boat crashed, killing everybody except for the rear gunner, um, it does mention that the Duke of Kent was on his way to a, on a special mission. Mm. Well, he wasn't. He was on a routine inspection of various different airfields and various different units. Yeah. He was on his way up to Iceland um, to go and have a cup of tea and a whiskey before onward, um, onward inspection. It was just a routine tour, basically. Yeah. But does, it says on the can, it was uh, on, his, on his way to a secret meeting or a special mission or something or something. Mm. Interesting. Well, very mm. can't wait. Um, <laughs> can we can we talk a bit about uh, Bricksmiths because uh, it is a unit that I I am fascinated with. Can you just quickly describe the role and how it was granted its uh, access to East Germany? Yeah, uh, right back down at uh, 1945, it was agreed basically that with the Wehrmacht imploding and um, disintegrating, that there was a possibility that we might be doing some blue on blue. And that was the case sometimes. The, um, the disintegration of the Wehrmacht was going so fast that the Soviets were advancing faster than we uh, anticipated, or, or in fact that they anticipated as well. And therefore, the possibility was that um, we might come across or come up against each other. I'm talking about the Western Allies yeah. and uh, the Soviet Red Army, and therefore might be shooting at each other and that kind of stuff. There was a clear um, requirement for liaison missions between East and West. That was set up between General Robertson and the Soviet um, General Malinin in our particular case. And it was a purely a liaison mission. And uh, there were lots of things to talk about, like the upkeep of the uh, the three corridors into Berlin. Of course, everybody thinks it was just one, but there were three indeed. And, you know, funding for the repair of a bridge and all sorts of different things to talk about. And so it was agreed that it was a pretty good idea. But of course, um, with Stalin at the helm of the Soviet Union, it meant that um, the Cold War was about to get very icy cold. And that the liaison mission would turn into a semi-covert espionage uh, mission, which is exactly what happened. Right. That's how it started. We were accredited correctly to the Soviet army. So we had our Ujostvorinia Lichnosti, that means our MOD Form 90 equivalent, our Soviet identity cards. Everything was in Cyrillic. And we were correctly accredited to the Soviet. So we had a a legal excuse to be there, a credit to them. We had to go and um, talk to them often about lots of little things. It, but it was regarded as incredibly valuable as a backdoor method of communication between the high-level staffs of both, uh, of both armies. So that's why it's called correctly the Commanders-in-Chief Military Mission to the Soviet Forces of Occupation in Communist East Germany. It's a nice snappy title. 
snappy, snappy battle, yeah. <laughs> and it was very exciting. We had all of the special equipment. We had special training. And, of course, we did do on the surface lots of liaison. We had even a dining club where Soviet officers and British officers and their wives got together in a hotel in Potsdam, drank lots of vodka, toasted each other endlessly, sang and, um, and, and lots of little speeches. And even the chief of staff uh, from Ryan Darlin from BFG headquarters, uh, who was a guy called uh, Major General Gray uh, mm -hmm. for a while, uh, became actually quite amicable friends with his opposite number, the, char the uh, chief of staff of headquarters GSFG, the Group of Soviet Forces Germany, whose name was uh, General Sirov, which means grey in Russian. And the two gentlemen actually found that highly amusing of each other. So there was that, but that was just a thin veneer. And, uh, of course, with our special equipment and our special missions, we uh, were there really to do as much intelligence gathering as we possibly could on both the Soviet army and also on the uh, National People's Army of the East uh, German forces. So we spent an awful lot of time being quite cheeky um, without overdoing it because, of course, uh, our training, which was very, very good indeed and very specialized, was basically risk versus gain. Do not take undue risks if the gain is not worth it. If it's a piece of equipment that you're photographing or you're trying to unscrew a bit off a tank or something like that, then if we've seen it already, then don't take the risk. On the other hand, if it's something new that we've never seen before, and of course it was a half Air Force as well as half uh, Army organization, mm. then the risk that you take could be lethal, could be fatal, but might well be worth the risk. It's up to you. And so there's no adjutant, there's no commanding officer, there's no nothing with you. It's solely at your discretion. You're a young, fit, highly trained captain, where well, we all were, basically. Uh, you've got a highly trained um, observer in the front, usually a warrant officer. We had one or two from the Special Air Service. We had one or two from the Intelligence Corps, who were probably the most highly decorated men that I've ever served with for their bravery. Mm. And we had some extremely competent um, NCOs and warrant officers sitting in the front seat. They were calling the equipment as we um, saw it. And we were photographing it sitting in the back in the shadows in the back. And the drivers, I think, were probably the most important people of the three-man teams that we had. Uh, there were Air Force drivers and there were RCT drivers who were absolutely outstanding. I would not be talking to you right now, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that, without the quick thinking and skill and ability of some of those uh, drivers that we had at Brixmith. So that's what we had out uh, in the DDR. Right. And so what vehicles were you using? Was it the Range Rover you described earlier? What we had were, um, well, my favourite, and for a lot of us, uh, the favourite was actually the, uh, the top-of-the-range Opel, uh, Opel Senator, Top of the range, not in plush comfort. That would be the Opel Admiral, I think they call it. But the Opel Senator was an absolutely brilliant vehicle. Yeah. Then they were armor-plated. There was a 180-liter extra fuel tank in the back. And they were converted, basically, to be powerful, off-road, four-wheel drive, incredibly fast, but sleek and low-profile and as quiet as they could be. And that was my favorite vehicle for uh, touring. 
you could get out of trouble fast as long as you um, didn't, you know, get it bogged in on too much bog on a training area, then it would go anywhere. That was my favorite vehicle. Then we had the Range Rover. They were um, brilliant for different things. They were quite slow compared to the Senator. Um, they were heavy. They weren't that reliable because we put so much extra kit and armor plating. We, in fact, completely built up a roof so that uh, teams could actually stand up on the roof with camera equipment. So if you were in a small fir tree, like a Christmas tree plantation, mm -hmm. next to a Soviet airfield, then you could drive into that and still get your good photography by standing on the roof. So that made them top heavy a little bit. Otherwise, they were pretty good vehicles. But the top of the range, um, I think in my day and right up until the end of Bricksmith's time when communism uh, finished, was the um, Geländewagen, the Mercedes G-Wagon. We called them the G-Wagon, the Geländewagen, and they were absolutely brilliant. They were brilliant. And we um, completely doctored them uh, so that they had a, like a dentist chair in the back, sitting, sat in the middle, which I didn't particularly care for, but that's another story. Um, a hatch on the top. We removed the spare wheel and mounted it on the back door so that it would look like a Soviet WAS 469 Jeep. Yeah. And uh, they were brilliant. We had the long wheelbase version. The Americans and the French used them as well. They had the short wheelbase version because the French and the Americans only had two man. No, the Americans had two man uh, patrol teams. The French, no, actually, they sometimes had three, but we actually, anyway, we had three man teams. So we had the, uh, um, the long wheel, uh, the long wheelbase version. Right. And that's what we used. And, and why were they armor plated? Was that, in case the Soviets or the East Germans open fire on you? <laughs> well, um, no, but there were um, plenty of opportunities where we made those, uh, the Opel Senators, for example, um, we made them leap over stone walls and grind their way over um, pretty rough uh, terrain and do things that, would basically wreck any other vehicle of that nature. And right. so there was uh, extra armor plating underneath to stop us cracking the sump on that kind of stuff. So it wasn't basically um, uh, against us being shot. Yeah. And there were sometimes bullets which did come into the back uh, of vehicles, which was an unpleasant experience. But um, what really... I didn't like very much, particularly was after you'd been on patrol for a couple of days on tour for a, a day or two is that the, um, you'd hear the fuel getting down a bit, sloshing around in a half empty fuel tank and it was right behind your back. So you were just, uh, <laughs> you, yeah. you could, if you leant back into your seat, you could feel the uh, fuel tank with your, um, with your spine, which is actually pretty unpleasant, but never mind. Yeah. I've got some bruises probably still to this day where my uh, <laughs> spine smacked through the uh, through the seat. And what what equipment were you using to uh capture information? Presumably, you know, uh high quality telephoto lenses and stuff like that. Yeah. We went to the uh we went to do a thing called the uh, special duties course at the intelligence center which in those days was in Ashford in Kent. Nowadays it's in Chick Sands in England. Mm -hmm. Those days it was in Ashford, and that was brilliant. And that was a course that was attended also by the Americans. And we learned how to 
use different types of camera bodies, including huge, big, you know, thousand millimeter lenses that look like a dustbin strapped to the front of your camera body. And then with doublers as well, you could literally read a number plate off a vehicle a mile away. So that needed a bit of training. Uh, we used them. We had uh, the standard uh, 180 millimeter uh, lens, zoom lens, motor drives on the bottom. And then we had a little happy snap camera for breaking into bunkers where you could just stick it in your pocket and uh, it was less obvious. We had uh, video equipment, which I didn't particularly like. I preferred the classic still frames, which could then be analyzed. But we had, we had video um, equipment as well. Uh, the gentleman in the front, usually an NCO, a senior NCO or a warrant officer, he had a little uh, pocket tape recorder that he could record the equipment and they could speak extremely quickly and call the kit uh, as we drove past it on a convoy or something or, you know, various situations where they had to recognize the kit quickly, especially at nighttime. We had, um, in my day, we had infrared and we had uh, image intensifying. We had Envian SPB um, goggles so that we could drive without any lights. We had a special switch on the vehicle, which you could hit the uh, the James Bond switch, as some drivers used to call it, which meant that it it cut every single light on the vehicle. You could open a door, um, you could put the lights, you could put the brakes on, for example, and nothing would show. No lights. Yeah. It, it isolated every single light. And so that was the kind of equipment that we had, and. Um, we had other bits and pieces we used occasionally for jumping onto trains and diving into a vehicle on a low loader on a train or into a, a bunker. That was quite popular with a lot of people. At nighttime, we had um, a mission to go and recover thrown away uh, documentation, paperwork. And for that, we simply had a torch right angled six inch with a red lens on it. I also had an Air Force um, torch, which was brilliant, which uh, which you could use without giving any light away at all for reading maps at night. If you're moving fast across country at nighttime and you didn't want to give any light off or ruin your own vision, mm. I had one of those and lots of other bits and pieces as well. And then, of course, we had to live. So we had uh, equipment for brewing up uh, water. We all had two thermoses. That was standard equipment. And the driver, it was his responsibility to uh, do the water. I don't know why it was his responsibility, but it was. And uh, so we'd boil up water, and that would keep us going um, for uh, for the whole day, basically. Right. So, and, how, you know, and lots of other bits and pieces as well. Right. And how, how long were the tours that you went on? Mm. Uh, the basic tour was the what was called the local tour. And all you did was you checked out our neighbors, which was 35th Motor Rifle Division and um, border guards of the East German forces. And in other words, your main mission for doing that, and it had been going on since the end of the Second World War, was to check that the um, the um, activity on the other side of the Berlin Wall, just outside of Berlin, mm. uh, was routine and normal, and that there was no indication of a heightened threat in times of tension. And that occasionally did happen. Like, for example, in 1968, well before my time, when uh, a lot of Soviet units mobilized and went um, to take care of the 1968 Czech uprising, for example. Yeah. 
that kind of thing. So we were watching for um, that, and that took uh, basically only 24 hours. He went out in the afternoon, did a lot of work at night, obviously. Um, if it was really busy, then you wouldn't sleep. You would be uh, monitoring night moves onto convoy moves, in other words, onto training areas. And there was a lot to work and a lot to do um, on. So that was that. And then the longer tours, I mean, on average, it would be like a two or three day tour. There was not much reason to be out longer. The intelligence that you brought back, for example, if you were covering a big um, river crossing or a big movement, sometimes that would be up to you know several thousand vehicles moving, a, you would be running out of film. I mean, you could take um, a thousand photographs in just a couple of hours very easily. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, you wanted your intelligence information still to be fresh. There was yeah. no use if it was a week out of date. So I think the longest one I ever did was um, four days or five days, by which time you are so tired because it's a 24-hour job, basically. Yeah. Um, you're so tired and batteries need replenishing and stuff needs sorting out yeah. and you're getting very smelly in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and how did the Soviets and the East Germans try to hinder your uh, tours? How did they try to, sorry? Hinder your tours. Yeah. Um, there were signs all over the place, uh, which said, I can still remember every single word. The signs were everywhere on training areas and garrisons and that kind of thing, which said um, entry prohibited for members of the military uh, liaison missions, these, the foreign liaison missions. So we would pay no attention to them. And were those signs, were those signs allowed under the Robertson? Malinin agreement? No, you, you obviously know what you're talking about. That's quite clear by the, the framing of your question. So well done, you. Because no, those those signs just by themselves uh, were not part of the robertson Malinin agreement. Likewise, there would be Spergebiet signs, uh, which were everywhere on East German army uh, training areas and that kind of thing. We ignored them as well. But what was different was the maps which were issued to us by the Soviets, which we then had to copy and translate onto our maps, which are called PRA maps, Permanently Restricted Area Maps. And they were everywhere. And they were protecting their main training areas, their nuclear weapons storage sites, their bunker sites, uh, etc. Now, those you disregarded at your own peril. If, If you were a naughty boy and were caught literally um, behind those uh, particular signs saying that you're going into a permanently restricted area, then you could expect uh, perhaps to get away with it once, maybe twice. But after that, you would be PNG'd, which meant persona non grata. And it did happen to a couple of friends of mine who then were no longer allowed over the Glienicke Bridge, the bridge of spies, as it's now called, into East Germany. And you were a persona non grata. You were no longer um, able to go and do your job. So all of that time wasted that you had spent training. So you didn't want to do that. On the other hand, if occasionally you saw something really sexy, like you'd never seen it before, going into permanently restricted area, then you could, um, once again, huge amount of responsibility. You could take the decision 
to risk yourself being PNG'd in order to get the photography of like in my day, for example, I would have happily traded my um, ability to still work for Bricksmiths for good imagery during daylight of T80, T80U and uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And the permanently restricted area, was was that an area that Major Nicholson had gone into? Or is that... (laughs) No. As far as I remember, it wasn't, because I remember doing the same uh, training area and the same, using the same OP. In fact, there were two OPs that we regularly used. Uh, And it was a training area for armoured vehicles. And I used those uh, myself, so it can't have been in a permanently restricted area. The problem with these signs that said um, no entry for um, mission members is that once you're behind, you're very much um, putting your life on the line depending on how they're going to react. And you don't know what they're protecting. And we had a, a, an idea what was going on up there but we had never actually seen what we were looking for. And I go back again to saying uh, T-80, that was the big beast that both he and I and several others were after. He was an armor officer, just like me. Uh, And I liked the guy. He was uh, actually quite aggressive with his touring. He took risks. Uh, He spoke better Russian than me. Um, In fact, he knew an awful lot about the way of life that, to the Russians had. So I respected him for all of that. But um, what we were really after was imagery for the very first time in the West of this brand new beast, T-80, which is a quantum leap forward um, by the Soviets. Up to that time, it was T-64, T-64B, T-72. Those were the main battle tanks. And this thing was entirely different and a huge surprise and a nasty one for Western intelligence communities. And the problem was it had a gas turbine engine in it, double-pinned track, and a 125-millimeter main armament gun, which could do things that our tanks still to this day cannot uh, yet do. And that was to fire a main round of ammunition through the gun. Well, no surprises there. But also that they could um, it could fire a guided missile through the uh, the tank gun barrel, which of course with rifle barrels like we've got you can't do. Yeah. And we were very interested in trying to uh, actually observe this thing for the very first time. And I remember being um, close to where he was killed, where Nick was killed, and hearing helicopters flying, and I thought that's unusual. Uh, it's too late in the middle of the night to be taking part in a in a helicopter flying program. There was a DHSS, Div Helicopter Support Squad, not far away, and I thought they might be flying. And then a very brave guy from the uh, SAS was my NCO, uh, and I adored touring with him because he was really he knew absolutely no fear at all. And he said he said, "Listen to that, it's changing gear." And we heard this whining, screeching noise, which we recognized as a turbine of a of a hind helicopter, one of the hind E's that uh, the service had there. And I said, bloody hell, helicopters don't change gear. So it's the same. That's the first time that we knew that it wasn't a diesel engine. It was a gas turbine engine. It's the yeah. same engine that was uh, 
powering the hide. And so we went harrying off and chasing off after that tank, but it was so fast we couldn't catch up with it. It was disappeared way into the distance before we could catch up with it. So that's the kind of thing that we were doing. And so um, I'm afraid he was fortunate in one way, just for a few moments, in that he obviously saw T-80 in a shed, got up on an oil barrel, took his photograph through the window, got very excited, ran back to the car and was shot and unfortunately left to bleed to death. Um, And the camera was taken away by a Soviet. So we never actually saw the imagery that he'd actually taken. But it's obvious that that's what he had seen. Right, right. Um, We, by the way, I don't know whether you know, but we every year on the date of his uh, killing uh, have a re-slaying up there at the spot. There's now a memorial there. Right. I think I saw, yeah, I, when I was doing some research on you, I, I saw that you uh, participated in that. Surely the, the East Germans or the Soviets tried to tail you once you came over Glinica Bridge? Or? <laughs> yeah, just Glinica, it's pronounced, Glinica. by the way, just a, a small point for you, just for No, 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 thank you. <laughs> yeah, the Glinica Bridge. They um, were a pain in the ass, actually. They weren't particularly... They weren't particularly bright or quick-witted, but you ignored them at your peril. They were very thorough and very plodding. And they were the Stasi, of course, the East German Secret State Police, and they were everywhere. So one of the first things we had to do um, was check in to Communist Berlin, East, East Germany rather, I'm sorry, not Berlin, into East Germany at Potsdam at the Gwinnicker Bridge. Um, and given our Soviet passes, they would then be checked. And you could see at the same time that there was an East German policeman in a in a sort of like a, a, a Doctor Who kiosk, like a telephone booth yeah. behind net curtains, frantically telephoning. And uh, he was alerting his mates that um, you were coming. And so they were a real pain in the ass. They really were. And they try and trail you and follow you. We had our methods of getting rid of them. And that's the first thing you had to do is actually to unhook these guys. We called them narcs, to unhook the narcs before you could then go on and do your um, job. If you knowingly went onto a training area or broke into um, uh, a tank hut, you know, a tank hangar, something like that, or whatever, and knowing that you've got um, a narc Stasi uh, on your tail, then you were courting disaster. There's no doubt about it. And, of course, we had our methods of getting rid of them, so we did. That's quite fun. I've I actually made a documentary on German television, which is two hours long, three episodes. I mean, called Blimey, two hours. I don't expect anybody to be able to stay awake for two hours. But Oh, no, this it, sounds good. <laughs> It's a documentary which was made with Larry Kelly. He's a retired full colonel of the U.S. Marines, an A-4 Skyhawk pilot, and again, another very brave guy who could speak brilliant uh, Russian and uh, German. And he and I, together with uh, a Frenchman called Jean-Paul Stope, um, and with a Stasi guy, amazingly enough, joining the team, were uh, filmed by ZDF television, second German television. Yeah. And it took about two years to get the whole thing researched and done and uh, kept me very busy for two years. And it was all about how we, um, how we operated and how we operated against each other. And uh, that was very interesting. Actually, the Stasi guy I became quite friends with. He was actually quite a nice guy. I had no access to grind, despite the fact that the Stasi were responsible for killing another 
of my colleagues, a guy called Philippe Mariotti, a Frenchman down at Halle, the city of Halle. That was a Stasi job to uh, kill him, and they did. They were very successful. But I didn't mind. Um, you know, they were just doing their job in a way, and they were rather simple-minded um, guys, very predictable in many ways. And did the Stasi guy feel that he was, you know, even now that he'd done the right thing? Or was he, um, you know, apologetic or...? or? Uh, two different levels. The official level was that they were just doing the right thing and they were protecting their sovereignty, which, of course, we didn't recognize, and that they were protecting their security, which, again, we were not um, very – we were rather contemptuous of it. But on a personal level, he did express his uh, sadness that these two colleagues of mine, they were both killed within a year, and both at the same time that I was – active in communist Germany. So I knew them both, the American much better than the uh, Frenchman. I hardly knew him, but I knew him anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's therefore said, I'm sorry about the loss of your two colleagues uh, in these unfortunate circumstances. And I, I left it at that. And I thought that's as much of an apology you're ever going to get from one of these uh, unpleasant people. He turned out actually to be very pleasant, you know, uh, uh, on that sort of level over yeah. a beer talking about the next day's filming, um, he was quite amicable, and so was his wife. But typical Stasi, we, before we had actually finish, finished doing the filming, he had the temerity to uh, drop dead of a heart attack. And I said, yeah, typical Stasi. <laughs> he was called Manfred Muller. And, uh, yeah, we became as much as it's possible to become friends with somebody like that. Yeah. He was quite proud of himself, actually, yeah. in many ways, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess he's, you know, getting on West German well, or German TV to tell his side of the story as well. He's probably... <laughs> well, he didn't get too much chance to do that, but, um, uh, yeah, we're filmed uh, together doing various different things. At one point or other, I don't remember my, my emotions behind it, but I remember actually uh, putting my arm around his shoulder and uh, saying, well former enemies now we're friends and he looks into the camera and a few days later he he was dead so i don't know whether he knew that he was ill but yeah anyway wow so what incidents stand out when you were on on tour i mean i've seen photos of uh you know bricksmith's vehicles boxed in been rammed and incidents like that um, have you got any that that particularly stand out? It sounds like you might have. <laughs> How many weeks have you got? I mean, oh, uh, we've got big, ages. <laughs> big incidents. I mean, life-threatening incidents happened on a regular basis. Sometimes uh, on a busy exercise training period, um, you could have one every fifteen or twenty minutes. Uh, one stands out was 35 Motor Rifle Division. Uh, I saw that an ambush had been set up. They let me through the check-in front gate into this ambush area. And I thought, uh, I'm in trouble. This is going to be exciting. But if they have put an ambush in place, then there must be a really very good reason. So what do I do? Do, I, do we do a quick handbrake turn and power off somewhere else? and go and have a cup of tea somewhere and rethink? 
or do we wait till nightfall and come back later, or do we uh, press on as fast as we can before they can react? I thought the third um, most risky option was perhaps uh, the brave thing to do. I'm not brave at all. I'm just a standard, regular human being mm. uh, who can get scared uh, in certain... Uh, 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 let me put it this way. I, I felt fear, but your training is so good that you learn how to control it and how to live with it. So that's the situation I was in. And sure enough, the next thing I knew was that we are looking at some very interesting equipment being put onto a train. It was a place where there had been an almost fatal um, incident involving an American uh, officer. And I think uh, the either fatal or near fatal um, injury by the Americans of a Soviet officer. But that's another story for another day. In my particular case, I thought um, I've got seconds to photograph what's going on, and then we'll hightail out of it. And I noticed that from multiple different directions, there were big, big armored vehicles coming my way, BRDMs and BMPs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was to be boxed in, run over, injured or killed. So um, I executed the well-known uh, cavalry order, run away, drove off as fast as we could. And we came within probably a foot or maybe at the most, probably two or three feet, but it seemed like only inches. It felt like that um, of being uh, flattened by a Soviet uh, vehicle who was intent on evil action against us. And that was to make a purposeful point that they wanted to get revenge for the near killing. Or in fact, it may well have been a killing. I'm not sure what did happen with the Americans. They never quite told us how it finished off. But um, they were not very nice about what had happened and wanted to take us out, as the Americans say. So that uh, sticks in my mind. And how the God, I mean, I know how we avoided it, but it was instinctive and training together uh, reaction uh, on behalf of our driver and Pete Locke, I hope you listen to this one day, my dear friend. Pete Locke was a wonderful corporal in the RCT and he had a habit of making cars stand on their noses, dance, do pirouettes and things that <laughs> God never intended people to be able to do with cars. And that's how we avoided. He ran the car, our car, charged head on towards the Soviet heavy armored vehicle which is charging towards us so he took it on and charged it head on and at the last minute dabbed the brakes and swerved in underneath the glasses plate knowing that this charging rhino couldn't alter course as fast as we could and we escaped um just with some scraped paint uh oh. that's the closest i think i probably uh, came to um serious injury or possible death and a few weeks later, in almost exactly the same um, circumstances, my French colleague, Philippe Mariotti, was killed um, in almost identical circumstances. So I keep thinking back to that. Um, I was down the wrong end of a firing range with another brave guy who was a staff sergeant in the Royal Engineers. He was extremely smart and brave and was commissioned into the army air corps 
who's listening, he'll one of these days he'll know who I'm talking about. And he said, actually, you know, um, the safest place to be on a gunnery range is downrange behind the firing point butts, you know, down at the far end where the targets are. Um, I wasn't quite sure whether I shared that uh, view, um, but it was certainly very interesting being at the wrong end, having been a, a well-trained armor man and put thousands of rounds downrange at the Royal Armour Corps ranges, the gunnery ranges down at Lowell. It was kind of interesting being at the wrong end, the receiving end, but it was also um, best place to uh, observe and critique their training. That um, was okay until one round went through a target and made a sort of whooshing, whistling noise, which I can still hear to this day, as it went um, vertically up in the air and came down almost vertically and landed smoking away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just like they do in the movies. Yeah. A few feet away. That was kind of interesting. Wow. Um, what, what were they firing? Was it? Uh, um, yeah, they, they were firing uh, main armament um, T-64s or T-64Bs. And uh, on a different range, again, the same tactic of being uh, up at the sharp end. It was the BMP-2, which we had not seen before. And we wanted to find out the caliber of the ammunition. BMP-1 had a 76-millimeter gun. BMP-2 had a 30-millimeter semi-automatic gun, and we were very interested in that. So we were sent to get um, rounds of ammunition from downrange. Uh, that was fairly close. Quite often we were chased. I mean, I remember being chased by a TMM. That's a huge, big Kras 255B truck. I mean, you look out the window of your vehicle and you can't even see over the top of the wheels. They're so big, a big Kras 255B. Mm-hmm. And that came very close indeed. Another incident happened. Uh, it happened also to a friend of mine called Guy Potter, where he was rammed so hard sideways that it, it um, threw the vehicle off its tires, <laughs> literally wow. threw our patrol vehicle off its tires. But they still managed to crawl away, limp away, yeah. on the rims, which is a remarkable thing to do. And then we're found about half an hour later having changed uh, two of the uh, of the wheels, Yeah, uh, which would have been enough to get away, but uh, they were discovered and then arrested. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and little things like this were happening all the time. I mean, all the time, which, of course, in my day, I was young, uh, fit, trained. I was enjoying the job immensely. And I found it actually quite exciting. Nowadays, when I look back, it uh, wakes me up in the middle of the night thinking, bloody hell. Yeah, no, I can, I, I can imagine. And what, what were your instructions if you were detained? Uh, we trained uh, very comprehensively how to deal with all of these situations. And in fact, we trained on Salisbury training area near Lark Hill. We operated against our own people. Um, who didn't even know we were there. For example, I remember breaking into the very camp where I had trained as a young lieutenant to join my regiment. I did my troop leaders course at Lulworth. Well, I broke into the same place uh, back and they didn't even know I was there. Other times we were training against artillery um, regiments which were deploying on exercise at Lark Hill. And then we would occasionally get the range military police would come and chase us off. We almost encouraged it 
I mean, it was MOD property. We were in trouble, obviously, because we were in a place where we should not have been. Mm. Um, but it made for good training, actually. And then again, we trained. The, basically, what happened was you did two years. I actually did two and a half years. I was extended for a special uh, operation, as some others were as well. But then you would, at the end of your useful career in Communist Germany, you came off pass, as we called it. Somebody else took your place, and you went back uh, with a crew to England. And one of our more burnt-out, half-wrecked patrol cars, plus the crew, plus myself, would then train over the course of a couple of weeks the new incoming guys, and we would stage detentions. It's called a detention. Yeah. So we detained the new guys, and everybody would speak. Well, I'd speak Russian. He would have to speak Russian back. And in fact, the guy that was supposed to replace me, I scared him off so much because it made it, we made it so realistic that he actually formed up and said, and my, mind you, this is after a year and a half of learning Russian, um, that it was too scary and he didn't want to go any further and he was um, RTUing himself back to his battalion. Gosh. So he didn't turn up. <laughs> that wasn't in the script. I think I made it too realistic. For him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what reaction did you get from ordinary East German citizens that you mixed. come across? Very mixed. Uh, we'd been operating for years um, with these big cars with yellow number plates with just a single digit on them. And so lots of East Germans, particularly near training areas, near uh, airfields, near headquarters, that kind of installation, they uh, saw us quite regularly, in fact. And so they knew who we were. Some of them were good Boy Scouts, would immediately roar off and go and find the nearest policeman, make a telephone call, or go and knock on the doors of the Soviet uh, military police and cause us trouble. Uh, but the majority of them were curious, friendly, uh, interested in what they could get out of us. So I was, I'm a, I'm a non-smoker, but I always had... Um, Marlborough, that's what they always wanted. They always wanted Marlborough, as they said. Hey, Tommy, as to I need kipper for me, Marlborough. I also had some men onlys or some playboys uh, with me. I had um, different ways of bribing things. We also had a float, which was issued to us of, I think it was 750 East German Deutschmarks, which is about a month's worth of pay, with which we could bribe a farmer to tow us out of a mud hole with his tractor. That happened to me regularly, well, not regularly, but several times. Mm -hmm. And so they were generally quite friendly. Uh, one particular incident, as an example, um, uh, is fixed in my brain, and that was uh, I was coming up to a major deployment of an entire garrison, so in a whole division, uh, called 16 Guards Tank Div. And... Uh, suddenly this East German farmer's coming, rushing up to me, saying, Tommy, Tommy, don't go any further. If you turn around the corner, you're going to be in trouble. There's a tank broken down. There's all sorts of vehicles that are dealing with the problem. Uh, there's a colonel or a major who's in charge of the situation. And <laughs> you don't want to trip up by stumbling into that little hornet's nest. Mm -hmm. But stay there under cover. And I'll come back in a few minutes' time. And he came back, literally, with a little scribbly bit of paper with all of the uh, bought numbers, you know, the registration numbers yeah. on the side of the parrots, usually a three-digit three number for a Soviet army, four digits for East German. 
And he gave me all of the registration numbers, the board numbers, um, the types of vehicles and everything else like that and said, have a nice day. So I gave him, uh, I think, a bottle of grass whiskey and said, thanks so much indeed. And he was as happy as Larry. Another guy tried to jump into my car through the uh, sunroof. He wanted to be taken over to West Berlin. <laughs> uh, others let me into their office uh, in a dairy. There's a whole bunch of old biddies who were actually very funny. My car was overheating and breaking down, so they let me make a telephone call back to uh, Potsdam. Ordinary citizens were not supposed to talk to us. East German military, of course, particularly those guys doing compulsory military service, they all had to do, mm -hmm. uh, were strictly not to talk to us, but they did anyway. They thought nobody else was watching. Some of them just wanted to know who shot JR, what's <laughs> happening next week on West German television, whether everybody in America goes around uh, for women going around with frizzed up hair and a coat hanger still in her, in her dress, you know? Yeah. The sort of Victoria principle look. Yeah. Um, and we're very curious. They were very, very, very curious indeed. And the most curious were down in Dresden because Dresden is in a valley in the Elbe River uh, Valley. And so it was known as the Valley of the Clueless to the rest of East Germany because they couldn't receive West German television down in the valley. Dresden, Tal der Ahnenslosen, Valley of the Clueless. So the first thing they'd ask you is what the hell's happening on West German television? Yeah. And would be very friendly to us. But you could never tell whether the situation suddenly wouldn't turn sour. And that would usually be because of the unexpected sudden appearance of an East German policeman. There was a, an East German policeman or a, an unofficial collaborator or somebody like that for every 10 citizens. The place was crawling. It was a proper, proper police state crawling with members of various different uh, police organizations. Yeah. Well, no, that's it. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I love the story about the guy in the uh, bottle of grouse whiskey. That's very good. Uh, I still know where his farm was. It's, <laughs> in, it's imprinted in my memory. And I've always thought next time I'm down by Weimar or one day when I'm down by Weimar, I'll go and knock on his door all these years later and say, thank you. I have done yeah. that to a couple of people. I did. Uh, oh, thanks to who did help us in communist Germany. Wow. Oh, that's great. Oh, and another thing you might find this interesting as well, um, and that is that I got a telephone call in the British Embassy. I was working years later in the British Embassy, and a guy said, uh, "You, we don't know each other, uh, but you could say that we do know each other. Uh, I was one of the guys that was operating against you, and it might be interesting for you and for me if we meet how about it and he was very nervous and so he was a stasi guy he was proposing that we meet and he yeah. was actually quite theatrically insecure about everything and he said if this uh telephone call is being recorded then everything is off you understand he'd seen me on television a friend of mine called chris burns was running the cnn office in berlin and there was an event down at checkpoint charlie i'd been asked by the ambassador to go down and cover it he thought that was my sort of thing so i did Chris Burns put me on TV, and this guy, amazingly, had actually recognized me on television. So he wanted to um, make contact. His curiosity kept him in check for several weeks, but it took him about three weeks, and he couldn't stand it any longer. So he actually phoned me up in the embassy, and he was quite nervous about it. Um, he was worried that I would hate him 
for some of the things that they've been doing. Uh, I said, no, not a problem. Uh, yeah, let's meet. So he pr- he proposed that we should meet at noon, uh, exactly on the frontier between East and West and Leeridge. And I thought, oh my God, he's been, he's been watching too many Hollywood movies. <laughs> and we had uh, several hours of confessing to each other how we operated, how we covered our tracks. He wanted to know one particular time how I had completely disappeared, and he was fascinated by that. As it was very easy, there was a train coming the other way, so we waited till it had passed, hopped over the rails, which we could do because we had the armor plating. Remember the armor plating? Yeah, yeah. And then in the shadow uh, of the uh, of the train, roared up the field in the opposite direction, keeping the train between us and you. <laughs> and that just completely dumbfounded him. He'd never thought of that. I just remember the stares of the passengers uh, out of this train looking into this field with clods of earth and stubble flying everywhere as we powered up this big wide stubble field, keeping the train between us and the guys who were following us. And sure enough, you know, the Keystone Cops cavalry went charging down the road and disappeared in the wrong direction. So we, we dragged ourselves over the rails again, back onto the road and continued with what we were doing. <laughs> Wow. That was an interesting experience. Yeah. Um, so now you're, um, you say you're, you know, you're, you're a historian, but you also do um, tours, don't you? I was always fascinated by particularly military history, German military history, uh, the Soviet Russian military history, which was all very one-sided in those days. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go and find out more. And um, so, um I suppose what really interested me was going to battlefields which had hitherto been impossible to visit. The big one which really interested me was the Zelo Heights battle, the last set-piece battle before the Battle for Berlin in April 1945. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I then found myself, because I could speak Russian, getting through Russian contacts in the uh, Russian embassy, very friendly and very helpful, would say, well, what is it you want? And I'd say, well, maps, um, third shock armies, uh, order of battle, all that kind of stuff. And they said, well, come back um, to the Russian embassy. It's on Unterden Linden here in Berlin. Uh, write out uh, a list of what you want, and we'll see what we can do. And amazingly enough, I thought they'd forgotten about me. Mm-hmm. I got a telephone call saying, we're going to send a driver around to your embassy from our embassy, and there is what? I wanted, and so armed with all of that, I was hooked basically on looking at military history. And I love it. And uh, I'll hopefully still be doing it one day when I uh, finally die. I don't want to stop. Love it. Yeah. Here yeah. in Berlin, it's um, it's Cold War, but mostly Third Reich. Yesterday, for example, I was out with nearly 30 executives on a big um, convention uh, from all over Europe and beyond. And they were fascinated just as much by Hitler's teeth and his last days as they were the Cold War stuff that I had to tell them. So that's what I do. Yeah. Do you find there's less interest in the Cold War stuff and more in World War II and the Nazi era? Which thread? I mean, there are three threads, main threads to the military history of the whole Second World War era. I mean, first of all, it was the the uh, Nazis' rise to power and coming to power. So that's yeah. 1933, as you know, up to 1945. But then the military stuff is 1938 to 1945. 
And then the third thread, which is grabbing most people's interest, is the history of the Holocaust. So I do all three. Right. Right. And you do, you do tours of Cold War sites in Berlin as well? Yeah. Right. I do, uh, again, main three groupings. It's um, student groups, so people who are doing uh, modern history, you know, first-year um, university students, second-year Canada, America, um, Great Britain are the main the main three countries, but I've done Norway and the Irish Army. I had them uh, over the, um, the Curragh not so long ago. They were doing a week's study uh, period, and they were solely interested in Second World War, and that was for their staff college, young captains and uh, young majors. Whereas other people, I've got an, um, an intelligence battalion coming from uh, England, and they will be solely interested in the Cold War. So for me, it really depends on not what I want, it's what the, what the client wants, basically. Yeah. I find the whole thing interesting. Yeah. And it, what Cold War subject do you think most people are unaware of? I mean, you know, people are mainly, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and Berlin Wall and those. But is there any subject that you think is um, not really known about but should be known about? <laughs> well, obviously, obviously, uh, the clandestine, semi-covert, you only really needed, I mean, if you needed to know, then you knew. But if you didn't need to know, there's no reason why you should know. And that's obviously the work of uh, the military liaison missions, ours, the French, the American, and, of course, the Soviet military liaison missions over in the Federal Republic of Germany. That people find absolutely fascinating. And um, they study it, doing their, um, you know, their modules, as the Americans uh, call it, modules of uh, modern history. They can study just that. So the whole espionage thing during the Cold War is is an evergreen of interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, this podcast will be furthering the knowledge of Bricksmiths. So uh, <laughs> great. Well, Nigel, thank you very much. I don't want to keep you from your dinner. Lovely. All right. All right. Thank you fun? for your time. All right. No problem. All okay. of that. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all we had time for, but I was genuinely honoured to speak to Nigel and hear about his amazing military career. There's extra information in the show notes where there's information on how you can get a Berlin tour with Nigel. And do head over to our vibrant Facebook discussion group where Nigel is a member. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook, but there's also a link in the show notes. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 21. Don't forget, if you like what you are hearing and would also like to support the podcast and get extra content, then head over to Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash coldwarpod and Patreon is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider as well. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, 
you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.